You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Limited Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. Joining me in studio today is Dr. Mike Razor. How are you, Mike? Doing well, Chris. How are you? Excellent. Also joining us in the studio today is Jim Ronquist, the Vice President of Development for Drake Waterfowl. Jim, how are you? Wonderful. Better than I deserve. Awesome. Well, today's episode, we're always excited about this one. Uh, it's post-duck season. Uh, we give Mike typically two to three weeks to kind of uh, digest all the information that he collects, all the data points that he somehow finds throughout the country through either uh, his biologist contacts. I just make them up. You sound it all special. Make it all sound special. You don't make them up. There's maps. There's everything <laughs> you could possibly imagine to pull together. <laughs> Properly we, credited. Yeah. For So what we refer to as the season in review and, and how Mike does this, he basically takes a look at everything we discussed as far as from, you know, that August 10th, 12th timeframe when the duck numbers drop all the way through the duck season, which ended this year in the South on January 31st. And now we get to take a look back. So we brought Jim from Drake in as well. We know that uh, you have your pulse on the, uh, really on the heartbeat of, you know, waterfowl hunting. And you travel a lot. You probably talk to a lot of people all over the country. So you probably have some really good perspectives on this. But Mike, if you want to go ahead and kick it off and just kind of we could start out where really where your timeline starts out as far as this season in review. Uh, yeah, I can do that. Uh, Jim, it's great to connect with you here. We we saw one another in um, Nashville last week. I guess it was last week. Yeah, it was last week. NWTF convention, my first time there. And we talked a little bit about this and getting mm-hmm. you here. Uh, and great that you can make it in studio. You know, we earlier this year, we did the waterfowl season outlook, kind of looking ahead, what to expect. And this gives us an opportunity to do a sort of a retrospective, not necessarily were we right or were we, were we, were we wrong, um, but rather just in some ways reliving um, what was mostly misery this year, I think, for a lot, for a lot, of, <laughs> a lot, folks. A lot of people. But I, I, I think also what this does, it gives maybe some people who really don't look at other flyways. Um, it, this really provides more of a continental perspective 
as to how duck season shaped up. It's not going to be specific to one person's blind, but really a 50,000-foot overview of why maybe some central Mississippi flyway hunters dealt with this or why, you know, some North Atlantic hunters. So uh, I think it's I think this is this is probably one of my favorite podcasts to look back on. Yeah, the reference to a 50,000-foot view is important because there's, there's no way that we can fully capture everyone's experiences or the way all the weather conditions or habitat conditions unfolded, even if we knew them. Chris, you mentioned, you know, I pull in some data. Most of the, quote, data that that we'll talk about and that is included in this report, it is something that we produce, we publish, uh, we circulate it to our board of directors, to a lot of our other volunteers. We make it available to all of our members. Anyone that goes to our website it will, will eventually be available there. It's something that I started doing a number of years ago because this time of year, we always get questions from folks saying, hey, what happened? What did you hear from other people? And it's like, rather than ad hoc this type of thing, let's get ahead of it and just um, make it a regular part of what we do. And the fact that it's been so well received is rewarding and that people look forward to it. And, and I enjoy this episode too, uh, Chris. It, it's a fair bit of work to pull together some of these, the data points being weather related um, and some population data. We go back to the spring, summer of last year, look at habitat conditions, population levels as informed by the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey, uh, stream flow data, snow cover data. Like, like I said, most of the quote data comes from meteorological, climatological data sets that are out there. Um, but we summarize those, pull them all together on sort of a monthly basis and allows you to see how things unfolded. Um, so this one, uh, we added, as usually happens, these reports uh, change a little bit. This year, I think last year, I had a segment in there about avian influenza, talking about it, what it was and what we saw. We don't have a segment on avian influenza this year. What we have is a short um, paragraph or two about El Nino because that was a big topic of conversation mm. for a lot of people. And then also what I did is pulled together some reports from the field, anecdotal reports and observations from some of our staff, some of our volunteers, some biologists uh, from each of the flyways, uh, trying to just provide a few snapshots of what they experienced. And Chris, that speaks exactly what you're talking about. This report allows other people to see what other areas may have been experiencing. Uh, experiencing. There were a few... Uh, favorable reports, but by and large, I think, well, I don't think, I know the overwhelming conclusion in what we heard from, uh, from every flyway is that this was one of the worst hunting seasons in memory for most current duck hunters. And that includes duck hunters that are 25 years old and duck hunters that are 65 years old. And that we heard that refrain from every flyway from every type of person, uh, including those that hunt public land, those that hunt private land, those that have very well-managed clubs or properties. Uh, there were struggles across the board. Uh, so if you're one of those folks out there that experienced a very, very difficult season, you're not alone. Mm, so, no, no. Jim, I know you, you, you're in that camp too, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and fortunate to have what we had uh, at times. The interesting thing <clears throat> that I've learned since duck season and, and during season was a lot of people had really bad duck seasons. For sure, we knew that. We knew mounters were down. Um, but a couple places, ironically, a couple properties had record-setting years or on record-setting paces. Um, those places were are typically very well-managed. 
they manage pressure, manage habitat, have good food, have good rest areas. Um, there, there's something to all that. Yeah, but it wasn't necessarily a regional pattern. It's like you couldn't you couldn't look to a certain area and say, oh, well, the, that portion of of I don't know, southwestern Missouri or that portion of the Central Valley of California did well because I heard some, it, it was just like localized properties or general areas that for whatever reason held birds, had birds that moved. Hard, to, hard to explain. Right down the road, you know, within eight, 10 miles of some of these places had horrible years and they were on, there was one place that it, they would have set a record had it not froze up. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So there's always hope. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that really kind of saved my area, when area that we hunt, is we're probably the farthest thing away from being mallard snobs. Mm. So, you know, it's like we were shooting a, quite a few ducks, but we weren't killing any mallards. And that, that was in Arkansas, obviously. So, you mm. know, I think that when we kind of look at, would look at our numbers this past year and say, oh, you know, we had one of our better seasons, but probably our lowest for mallards. So I yeah. think, like you said, it was, you know, just down the road. Somebody's not shooting any. So right. that's it was super right. interesting to see who was shooting them, who wasn't. Mm-hmm. And that could have played some into it, you know, guys who are typically not shooting mm. other birds other than mallards. So. Correct. And that one of the places come to mind would be one of those. I know the places that we had last year were just that very thing. Uh, of the ducks that were harvested, our mallard percentage was really low. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that dials back into the bee pop and we need a hatch. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely do that. Now, I went on a few uh, hunts this year. I think I've detailed some of those on prior episodes. And I think most of those were multi-day hunts. And pretty much, I don't think pretty much, I think in every single case, there was one good day, but then the one after that was was real quiet. Yeah, you know? not so good. Actually, matter of fact, though, I don't think we, when I hunted with you, Jimbo, I don't think we had one really good day. We saw a lot of birds each of those days, mm-hmm. but um, but the birds were stale, weren't, to, to use that word, which I'm sure we'll use again in this conversation. Um, saw a lot of birds, but they just didn't want to work. They had been, but, yeah, but they, you guys hadn't hunted that place. We, we hadn't, and I think part of that issue there was dealing with the big rest area right close to mm-hmm. us we had a lot of ducks to look at i don't care how good a caller you think you are how good a <laughs> decoys you think you've got you're not going to beat the real thing that's swimming yeah. flapping and quacking all at the same time yeah um but uh, some of the other places where I, I i hunted had a good first day and then it was just really quiet after that which tells me that you're hunting the same birds that have that have been around for a while or they've they've been pressured before somewhere up and down the flyway, they figure the game out pretty quick, which speaks to what you're talking about, Jimbo, needing a good hatch so that you get good action, you get dumb birds. Um, for, for lack like, of a, the, the dumb ones always make you <laughs> yeah, look throughout better. Throughout the season, yeah. that's right. To, to that point, I just recently heard in the past couple of days, a guy was telling me that he knew of, I think it was six or eight bands from different places in the last week of the season <laughs> after we had that big front. We picked up a lot of ducks, but all of those bands were eight years old or older mallard bands. So wow. that's kind of unique. And, you know, I've, I've seen a few that's 11 and 12, but to hear of that many from different places kind of gives you an idea. Yeah, I've heard Dr. Doug Osborne uh, talking about some of that, what they've seen from their uh, band recoveries this year, a high percentage, I think an unusually high percentage of older birds. Um, so there's bits of information out there to kind of, um, put together a, 
a bit of a picture of what we were seeing and what we saw this year, plus also what we've been seeing here over the past few years where we've not had multiple, well, we haven't had a, uh, a year where the entire prairies were wet uh, and certainly haven't had back-to-back years where significant portions of the prairies were wet in a long time. And I think we're seeing the, the effects of that. When you look at over, uh, the breeding population survey results and the pond numbers over the past five or so years, you got a two-year gap in there. So we don't really know what that uh, what those conditions were. Other than 2021, we know was incredibly dry. We don't have a number for that year, but we know it was super, super dry. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so over those five or so years, we're kind of regressing back towards the mean, uh, maybe a little bit below the mean mm-hmm. for some species and not unexpected. It's not satisfying, but when you've got conditions, habitat conditions, the way we've had over that period of time, this is kind of what we spe- expect. And that's what we talked about quite a bit last year leading into the season. The breeding population uh, size was just one of several variables, though, that uh, that conspired, I guess, to kind of put it like that, what, to put it that way, <laughs> to make this an incredibly difficult and frustrating season for a whole lot of folks. Uh, I think a couple of superlatives on those breeding population numbers for uh, for total ducks out of the traditional survey area. Uh, it was the lowest number in like 15 or so years for mallards. It was the lowest breeding population estimate of the tra- traditional survey area in 30 years. Um, so those were some um, eye-opening numbers. Eye-openers. And maypons weren't good. And I know I've, I've in the past gone back and looked at maypons and how that affects harvest. And you look, <clears throat> especially in our part of the world, if maypond counts are up, our harvest rates will be up. Yeah, yeah. There were some unusual things going on with uh, bird counts in Alaska, you know, which is really a really important area for the Pacific Flyway. Their total breeding duck numbers were down 50%, with some species down 60% or more, which was a really, something you typically don't see. And I don't think anyone really believes that is, was a true population decline, but maybe more of a redistribution. Mm. Um, the habitat conditions, breeding habitat conditions throughout the Pacific Flyway, well, not throughout, in, in many portions of the Pacific Flyway this past year were improved over the prior year because they were, were recovering from that record drought uh, of, the, of, of the prior years. So they saw a boost in breeding ducks in some of those western states. I'm sure that captured some of the birds that would have otherwise gone north. But then there were a few other, um, there's some speculation about the timing of the survey not being ideal. It was a late spring up there in Alaska. And so I know a lot of people in the Pacific Flyway were looking, were, were anxious coming into the into the hunting season, wondering, uh, wondering if they would see the effects of that 50% decline in duck population estimate um, for Alaska. And I can't draw a line between two dots and say yes or no, they did see it. But you hear some people talk about um, they did, well, California, if you talk to people in the Central Valley of California, they would say they might have seen an effect of that. But they can also tell you that, that there was a general lack of weather 
that would have been that's typically required to move birds out of some of those uh, some areas of Canada, and certainly out of the Pacific Northwest, and uh, they they just didn't see the birds in California the way they typically do. So it was a very frustrating season for them. Mm-hmm. I think that was the one consistent thing throughout the season that I noticed. Just doing the migration alerts, you've got freelance riders all over the country who are, you know, kind of trying to collect this information from waterfowl man- managers, biologists, whatever. But it was, you know, from Washington State to North Dakota, into the Great Lakes, even, you know, upstate New York. Everyone was like, it's just slow. Yeah. It's, you know, like it was very consistent as far as, now, granted, there were different weather patterns involved throughout the season there that did help, but the overall message was it was very slow. Birds are stale. You know, mm. there just wasn't that consistent, like one after the other as far as fronts coming in, weather systems at all. And that was pretty eye-opening all across the board. Yeah. I mean, well, I know, I'm sure everybody saw the videos on social media where the guy in Saskatchewan and it's dry and there's a field full of Canada geese in yeah. December and January. That's just not supposed to happen. Right. New Year's Day, I had a dandelion blooming in my backyard. And <laughs> no got kidding. to looking around, I found several of them. No you kidding. know, that's not supposed to happen. Yeah. Um, a, a few other notable things on how late it was. Um, Chris, I guess I'll, I will say, was it October? I have it in here. All these dates run uh, kind of run together in my head right now, but I think the first appreciable cold spell was in late October. Yeah, it was right around Halloween. And and everybody got excited about that. And it did move some birds into some mid-latitude states. Mm-hmm. Those those areas that had hunting seasons that were open, I think, saw a push of birds and it was good for them. Uh, but but then things warmed up, got stale, didn't see a whole lot of uh, a lot of good temperatures and weather conditions to to duplicate that, you know, to replicate that kind of movement. Uh, Fritz Reed provided some comments to me saying that things were so warm that in northern Alberta, wetlands were still open uh, around Christmas time. He said yeah. normally that doesn't happen. There are also reports of people shooting, still uh, still seeing um, snow geese in North Dakota in early January. That normally doesn't happen. North Dakota, speaking of North Dakota, they had a record-setting midwinter survey. Uh, record numbers of Canada geese, over 300,000, I believe, when typically they have somewhere between 100, 150 or so. Uh, mallards, that they didn't count a whole lot of mallards. Uh, you know, uh, they didn't count half a million or anything of that nature. But the number they counted was somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 40,000, which is four to five times more than what they typically do. And predictably, they saw and counted some of those mallards on on the Missouri River and on some of the other larger lakes that are typically completely frozen by the time they conduct that survey in early January, that was not the case this year. It was still open, and it mm-hmm. wasn't until that mid-January Arctic you know, series of Arctic storms that that it froze some of those larger bodies of water, froze the Missouri River, um, and ushered out birds, those final birds, out of a lot of those areas. Yeah, that was a unique and very cool migration to witness you know i was going through some midwinter survey numbers yesterday just kind of digging through some stuff and then thinking about when they flew the midwinter it was really mild and then we got that front then we got a big rain event and there's a couple places scouting i found some really big feeds i wish we could have got a picture of that in time from what we had when to see how big of a shift we did have from the mid-latitude to arkansas right after that front because we went to having no ducks to some really cool stuff you yeah. know, going on. There's some folks that last week 
that 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 saved their duck season. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I I know Mississippi hunter, and we're kind of jumping around here, but that's okay. It's just nice conversation. We'll come back to a few things, but I know some hunters in Mississippi saw a a very noticeable jump in the number of birds after that storm came through. Um, Katie Burke, our co-host of the podcast here, her family noted a a big increase in ducks in that area. Now, it was a combination of more water because after that that front, we got a rapid warm-up and we got a bunch of rain. Uh, I noticed a change in some of the places where I hunt in Mississippi. I had a good, you know, for me, a good hunt, shot four mallards and a couple of other birds and uh, not a ton of birds around, but I had new water and it was definitely more birds than what I did have. But again, I had water when previously I had none because of how dry it was. Um, But yeah, I think the Mississippi late January survey also revealed what we're talking about. There were a lot of new birds that came into Mississippi between uh, early January and late January. And as you would expect, still not huge numbers, uh, but nevertheless, it saved, I guess, the latter part of the season for a lot of hunters. It may have, for many, it may have been the only opportunity they had to get out and hunt some of the places that had been bone dry for Mm -hmm. most of the season prior. What was interesting, you just, excuse me, you just hit on it a little bit, after the rain event and it thawed out and the wind, when the wind turned out of the south, watching the snow geese were leaving in oh, mass. Yep. And they were, to you, you mentioned earlier, we didn't get them until late. Normally, yep. we've got snow geese on the ground in good numbers by Halloween. What happened this yep. year? And as soon as they had a chance to get out, they were gone. Yeah. I, I told somebody I knew that was going to happen because those birds had been hanging out at northern latitudes. They were already gearing up to go back north. And so, some of those birds didn't want, would not have wanted to leave and head farther south unless they absolutely had to. I, I posted a video online of a flock of 16 snow geese that I came upon in a dry soybean field where I deer hunt in north central Mississippi and those birds were exhausted. They were looking for something to eat anywhere they could get it. I was able to walk within about 40 yards of those birds. They were not getting up and flying out. And there weren't a whole lot of weren't a whole lot of groceries in that field either. Um, so those birds moved only because they had to and Mm -hmm. they were on sort of their last gasp um and so yeah as soon as things warmed up and changed i i i yeah that doesn't surprise me at all to hear that people were seeing those birds streaming north Mm -hmm. and and mallards too a lot of we a lot lot of ducks were leaving then too and that's was another thing that i spoke about with some as everybody's watching the weather and watching this front build you know in january and it's every day do you see what what happened today? Did you see them today? Nope, not yet. But when they did move, they moved fast. Um, what was interesting, though, because it was so late in January, the photo period getting longer and longer every day, it's hard to wire them to turn south when they're really wired to go north. Yeah. Yeah, once they get going north, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the kind of the anomalies in all of that is, you know, the Illinois River Valley, um, the Forbes Biological Station does a good job providing the numbers up there, and they had some periods of time in November where they were up like plus 250% over their long-term average. But you talk to the guys who hunt up there and they're like, yeah, we're not seeing them. Like they, the weather was so mild. But they're just not telling you. They saw. No, stay me. down there, Chris. There's uh, no yeah, yeah, there's you. no ducks. Um, but, you know, they their hunting was not very good, but they had record numbers of ducks mm-hmm. in the holding in the area. And I think that a lot of that just played into those birds did shift a little bit south, not as far south as they 
normally would go, but they didn't have to go any further. It mm-hmm. was so mild. They just hung out and they had no need. They weren't forced to go out and feed. You know, there was nothing pushing them around. So Yeah, exactly what they saw in Missouri too is that after that late October cold front, and I think there was another cold push of cold air in early November around Veterans Day, prior to Veterans Day. I would say that's right. And Missouri had estimates counts on state and federal areas that were 70% above normal. You were talking about Illinois having yeah. numbers that were above normal. And so that was the early move of birds. But then if you look farther, look farther out at some of Missouri's numbers, you get into December and their numbers are down relative to average, relative to normal. And that sort of tells you there was that initial move and then birds just, they didn't have to do anything else yeah. after that. It was warm the rest of, of November record warm in December. Uh, it was just set records everywhere uh, throughout the mid-continent, eastern portions of, uh, of of North America. I mean, December was just was just awful mm-hmm. uh, from, a, from a temperature standpoint. And I guess we got a few precipitation events, rain events in some areas in, in December. Not a whole lot, though. Yeah, I don't remember what much of anything. Not. Maybe I'm thinking November when we started to get a little bit, but there there was Maybe. something early on that I remember starting to saturate. It's in here somewhere, starting to saturate something. We ground. did get one good rain, uh, about a three-inch rain in that time period, somewhere towards the front of duck season, but it was gone pretty quick. Yeah. Like. yeah. So, uh, you know, a couple of the other factors uh, alluded to a a combination of things that conspired to make this really difficult. We kind of touched on El Nino early, that being this large climatological pattern relates to sea surface temperatures out in the Pacific. And it has a pretty, when it's a strong El Nino or a strong La Nina at the other end of the spectrum, they can have pretty profound effects on the weather patterns that we see here in the U.S. or here in North America. And during an El Nino year, which this one turned out to be, as Noah described it, a moderately strong El Nino. I'm not really sure where it is right now, if it's starting to ease or if it's still intensifying. But in those years, typically what we see is warm conditions up in the northern latitudes. It can be wet down here in southern latitudes. Uh, It can be kind of cool down here in southern latitudes, which makes it a little bit confusing for hunters down here. If you're not looking at the big picture to understand what temperatures and snow cover is doing elsewhere, if you're just thinking, well, this is about an average year down here in southern latitudes for temperature-wise, why aren't we seeing ducks? Well, it relates to what's happening in other parts of the country. Uh, let me see. What's the other? So, yeah, warm up in the north, wet on the south, drier in the in the Midwest. Those are sort of the prevailing prevailing patterns for an El Nino. Uh, the wetness at southern latitudes certainly didn't materialize until January. Exactly. I was fixing to say it sure stayed pretty dry. <laughs> and it, it was dry in Arkansas, but really looking further south in Louisiana, it was really Some dry. of the guys on the coast down there just had a super tough year. Marsh drying up, saltwater intrusion into freshwater marsh yep, yep. areas. That's scary. Yep. It sure is. Man, that's ran the cost of crawfish up on us. Man, oh. that we're, we're no paying doubt. the price now. <laughs> no doubt. That, that is true. Um, so, yes, that was one of the prominent early season stories is just how dry it was all along the Gulf Coast. I talked to Kevin Cry the other day, and I know you talked to him a couple of times in mm-hmm. the season. He said the Gulf Coast of Texas just kind of struggled all year. The other thing that I'll say, though, which was a pretty uniform message during the early part of the part of the season related to drought, how widespread that drought was um, in the central Mississippi flyways and even on over into the Atlantic flyway is that 
if you had water, if you had the ability to pump water and manage water, you did pretty good. Now, it doesn't mean that you, doesn't mean that you did good every time you went out because you didn't get a new push of birds, mm-hmm. but you still had had some birds. Um, but if you're just relying on natural water, unmanaged water, you didn't have a whole lot of opportunities. And I I heard stories, I, I can't corroborate this firsthand, of some places in coastal Louisiana, essentially some clubs down there essentially having to cancel their season because the marsh is dry. There was no water in the canals. There's no water uh, in, in, the, in amongst the, the marsh. And even when they did get water, Later on, there were no groceries there because they had known it had grown no submerged aquatics and been no seed production during the summer. There just weren't a whole, whole lot of food resources. I think southeastern Louisiana in some places did pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, some of the guys that I talked to down there, one of the guys I fished with pretty regularly, he had a pretty good season. Um, even early on when it was everyone was dry and everyone's kind of complaining, he was doing well. And now he also said it was pockets. Yeah. You know, pockets mm. of birds in the marsh here and there, but not, you know, not everybody was doing good down there, yeah. but, you know, some of the dudes I knew down there did well. Pattern, I think, was pretty similar in the Atlantic Flyway. It was dry early on, kind of hit or miss. It was warm. It held birds north. It gave northern hunters a bit longer to chase some of those birds. But again, not a lot of new birds, not an abundance of young birds. So I think it was some tough hunting there. Um, and then, you know, once they once they got a little bit of cold weather, I think it might have improved things in, in a few locations. I think some of the coastal portions of those states did okay early on. Maybe, again, it's probably very highly variable from place to place. But the other thing that Atlantic Flyway hunters always look to is the condition of ice on the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. That was one of the more shocking things that I uncovered as I started pulling some of these graphs and some of these data. It's just how little ice formed on the Great Lakes. and They were at virtually record low until January, into mid-January, whenever that Arctic, um, that big polar vortex disruption occurred and had multiple storms come through and plunge temperatures to record low, it started to to make some ice, but then it warmed back up. And you see that ice cover, uh, percentage ice cover going back down in the graph that's in this report. And I read the other day that as of mid-February, Lakes Erie and Lake Ontario, which I think are two of the shallow. I know Lake Erie is the shallowest of the Great Lakes. They're virtually ice-free. Mm-hmm. Mid-February, ice-free. And so whenever you have those big lakes open uh, that late into the season, uh, you're just not going to get a, a, a you're just not going to get birds to move the way mm-hmm. Atlantic Flyway, Southern Atlantic Flyway hunters are, are hoping they will. So they suffered from that as well. Um, That's a killer for some of those Midwestern states too, um, Indiana, in particular, Ohio. Mm-hmm. You know, they really rely on, you know, the hunting really doesn't pick up until those lakes start forming ice, especially in the marshes on the edges. Um, but with it being so mild, they didn't even get that. You yeah, know. you talked to Jay Anglin a couple of times throughout mm-hmm. the season. I, I can't recall what his assessment was. Any did they have any good periods of, of hunting? Um, you know, he he probably had some. You know, he gets after them pretty hard up there. So, you know, he bounces around Michigan and Indiana, but he said that like Harsons was holding a bunch of ducks. Um That's some right. of these traditional migration areas held a bunch of ducks and they held them for a long time. Yeah. Um and guys up there 
I think Harson's well, when he did the podcast with me, it would, probably would have been first second week in November. Sounds right. And they had done pretty good. Yeah. Um, but I don't know how how well that held up. Um, the problem is another problem for hunters in the South and even mid latitude states. Those northern states went out. Their seasons closed. Yeah. Pressure gets off. And they didn't have to do anything. There's nothing, like yeah. one of my buddies from Wisconsin, he was driving to North Dakota to go ice fishing because there was no ice in Wisconsin. And like he's like, I'm driving across the state. And he's like, there's not one lake that's covered in ice to ice fish. Yeah. And and this was like early December. Yeah. You know, this is actually it was probably later than that, mid December. And so that's pretty eye opening. Um What's the DU event that we hold in Minnesota? Ice fishing for ducks or something? Yeah, fishing for ducks. Fishing for ducks. I think uh, I think someone was telling me that it's on Mill Axe, I think that they have canceled it. They've had to cancel it. Yeah, they canceled it this year. They didn't have enough ice, mm. so that's scary. And that you know, central Minnesota, borderline northern Minnesota, has no ice. Yeah, like, crazy. Um, I I've saw some people I think guess it was Montana I mean they were still hammering the ducks in in mid January uh, even even when it was like eight below it was seven below down here they were still hammering the mallards in Montana it was like 20 suckers below are or tough, something boy. Man, yeah. They, oh, yeah. especially that time of year man heck I'm not going I don't have yeah. to I'm already up here close to where I'm going to be be breeding mm-hmm. uh, and but what was weird for those guys too Montana Wyoming it's January yep. and they're shooting green wings. You yeah. know, like they, some of those guys that I talked to a couple of weeks ago when I was out there, they were talking about how they were, just, they still didn't get tons of mallards. You know, they, you know, it was warm weather ducks. How they many people did we all talk to that shot blue wings in December? Oh, yeah. We shot and some. Normally I'd say, well, the, those birds are pushing back early, going, but I don't, I don't think, think so. I think those were still just getting mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And guys in Montana were saying in early January, yeah, we finally got birds moving out of Alberta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, wow. That's not that's, good. I, I remember one of the first times I got to go to Saskatchewan years ago and was hunting with a Saskatchewan resident. It was one of them pretty days, you know, north wind blowing, pretty chilly. And he said, oh, it's a great day for the northern birds. And I thought, my Lord, how far north do you have to go <laughs> yeah. to get the northern ducks? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I have heard some people say is that, and it's is similar to what I said about the North Dakota survey, is that, yeah, although some of those northern states held birds longer than they normally do, it's not like they were covered up with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's not the story that I, and we wouldn't right. expect it to be the case given what we've talked about with the breeding population survey and the low number of, of ducks that we saw there. You, you add it all together, and just a bad year. You know, that's, I don't want to be gloom and doom either because yeah. my season did have some highlights. You know, oh, yeah. we, we had some pretty good hunts at times. Um, that being said, it seemed like the wintering distribution of all ducks was really elongated. Um, Maypond counts were down, bee pots were down, Mississippi River was at all-time low levels, yeah. White River was low, Cash, White and Cash River basins didn't get water until late. It's cyclic, right? So it's just one of them years that that hit, but it happens. You you know what I'm gonna do next year? You we'll can get ready to go duck hunt. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I, I think uh, Kevin Cry also told me that one of the bright spots in their state, while the Gulf Coast struggled, the bright spot was this area they call the Rolling Plains, the Panhandle, up in some of those uh, where they get a lot of playa wetlands. He said it was the wettest that it's been in about ten years. Now it's a it's a sparsely populated area from a human standpoint and so you can he didn't I haven't seen their midwinter survey have you seen Texas's midwinter Mm -hmm. survey results I don't even know if they're out yet I meant to check on that before we started I I think Kevin did tell me they 
their numbers in the rolling plains were up, which you would expect if they had water across a landscape that was otherwise dry for much of the much of the season. You'd expect that, mm-hmm. but I don't know that that area supports you know a lot of duck hunters. So you wouldn't I, wouldn't hear much of what I, I don't going think on. you would. But um, you know if. If you had birds this year, good for you. And I know, as Chris said, there were people that did, um, maybe right adjacent to other folks that didn't have them mm. throughout the season. And well, that's, that's the way it happens every year. Mm-hmm. You know, just this year is probably more that were, were without than those that found themselves, um, yeah, enjoying what they saw and what they were able to shoot. You want to take a break right now? Yeah. Should we do yeah, that? let's take a quick break and we'll come right back. Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, after these messages. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Hey, everybody. We're back here with... I'm here with uh, Dr. Mike Brazier, my co-host, and Jimbo Ronquist with Drake Waterfowl. Uh, we are rolling through the season in review, and I think we've we've probably... Hopefully, everyone listening is like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Hope You know, they're hearing the <laughs> scenarios that we've kind of spoken about, and I'm sure everyone probably saw sure, it. Sure, right on the money. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. They're probably going to send you emails, Mike. You're so right. I haven't gotten that yet. I'm <laughs> thankful for that. Let me know when that happens. <laughs> nice yeah, crowd. let me know. Nice crowd. Uh, but, Mike, you wanted to start off just kind of coming out of the break, talking snow cover. Obviously, big driver of migration, one of the many variables, um, and this year it just just did not happen in some areas. Yeah, it, it didn't. And, and as we alluded to earlier, we're kind of jumping around here and that's fine. Um, but, you know, if you were to structure this, you'd probably talk about four, I, I guess, broad themes that are broad factors that that in combination gave us sort of the perfect storm for a tough duck season pretty much across, uh, across the U.S. That'd be a low BPOP, widespread drought, incredibly warm temperatures uh, throughout much of the season, and then lack of snow. We've hit on all of those others, uh, but we haven't really talked about lack of snow. But uh, lack of snow, I mean, there's not a whole lot to talk about. We didn't have much. (laughs) We had, there are some snow maps that I pull, daily snow maps uh, showing snow cover. November 1st is one of, I typically pull from the first of every month, and I realize that fails to capture the full, um, I, I guess, depiction of snow that we may have gotten throughout the entire season, but it's a snapshot, right? So no snow on, on October 1st, a good bit of snow there on in early November across the northern prairies stretching into Canada, but by December, all that snow had melted. Um, there was a bit of a, of a storm that came through, I believe, around Christmas that dropped some snow in South Dakota, maybe Montana. You're starting to get some snow cover in the mountains, but still pretty dry, or pretty pretty low snowpack in the mountains, even in uh, as of early January when you look out west. But then we go to mid-January, and that's when things change. We even got about six to eight inches of snow all the way down here in the mid 
south, but a wide, wide swath of snow cover. And so it wasn't just the cold temperatures that were in our favor whenever that series of Arctic storms came across in, in mid early mid-January. It was super cold temperatures and a lot of snow, a lot of mountain snow in the Pacific Northwest. It actually locked in a lot of people. They couldn't get out, couldn't drive, couldn't go to the places where they wanted to hunt because the roads were icy. The roads were snow covered. Uh, across the Midwest, a lot of snow. Now, there is a gap there if you look at uh, look at this map up around Montana, Idaho, Western Dakotas, uh, and that would be consistent with some of the photos that I saw from some of those folks that were still out there hammering mallards in mm. mid-January with this <laughs> 20 below. Uh, kudos to those folks that are tough enough for that. And then you look at February 1st, all that snow is basically melted. There's some snow still in the eastern, in eastern Canada, but, but across uh, the northern prairies of U.S. and, and Canada, um, by February 1st, that everything had warmed up, that snow had melted. Uh, so we did not have very many snowfall events that would have contributed to, uh, you know, major bird movements by covering up food resources, uh, which is what we rely on it to do, right? So, we just didn't get it. Didn't get it outside of the uh, two or three, maybe maybe a few more if you look out on the Atlantic coast and some of the snow that they received. But I think most of that was pretty isolated. Great Lakes got some snow in a few uh, a few times. But yeah, overall, just not a lot of snow. And that was sort of the the, the coup de grace of the factors that we hope for when uh, when uh, when we talk about major migratory movements just didn't get it. Mm, so yeah. I think one bright spot there was that mid January when we did get the snow. Yep. Like you mentioned, Jim, like everyone's seeing ducks and you know picking up more birds, and so it just I guess for me and some of the guys that I hunt with, it was kind of one of those. Oh, they will move if we get yeah. the weather. You yeah. know, it's like, oh, yeah. So, you know, next season we'll have tons of snowstorms. and it'll, I hope We'll be so. in shape. You, you know, heard it here happens. first. Chris Jennings predicted yeah. lots predict of snowstorms. Yeah. Already. Yeah. I, I do know there's folks that had really bad seasons, but that that event made them have a – that saved their season. A lot of places lost 10 days, 12 days to being froze up. Mm, but yeah. there's a little little water in, in the White and Cash River Basin that helped a lot of guys. And as that thaw hit, there's some people had told me that's some of the most epic hunts of their life. Really? But there was – it was short-lived, but they got to see some good stuff. Were you able to – did you have much much success during the freeze? I did. I, I hunted with uh, – had an invite hunt with some folks on a big reservoir. Had, okay. Had some water open. We shot some ducks. And then getting a little water in white. Yeah. One of my favorite days all year, I was by myself. You nice. know, just, just me. Uh, me and my old dog. And that was probably one of the highlight hunts of – of my year, and I didn't even try to hide. Didn't tried to hide the boat. Just stood there. Man, I bet you enjoy hunting by yourself more now than ever. When you think about it, most of the time when you're hunting with other people, there's probably a camera around. There's pressure to post something. There's pressure to film something. There's pressure to say something. You know, you're always doing that stuff now, yeah. and that's a you don't get many days where it's just you and your dog, and you don't have to worry about any of that. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Got in the boat by myself. Went up the river. Um, shot my ducks with a 28 gauge and they had to be just in the right spot. If they lit over there, no, you, I got to make you come fight past this tree and under that limb. And if you'll do that, you get to go home with me. Did you shoot them Winchester Bismuth 28 gauge at them? All I right. Did. There you go. The little, you like those things? The, yes, sir. I tell you what, they're nice. They're good little pills. Chris, what do you want to do here now? You want to do sort of a flyway by flyway wrap up? We still on the back end of this need to do sort of a looking ahead. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we did a pretty prairies. good job of covering flyway to flyway. Um, 
I know I mentioned that, you know, we, we've kind of talked about California a little bit, Washington, Oregon. Yeah. Uh, they obviously got a ton of water. Yeah. Um, even they started out a little dry, then they got a ton of water. Then it just went into, you know, I think December for at least Central Valley Hunters was pretty much the doldrums, you know. <laughs> a lot of those guys, even late the last week in the season, we did the migration alert where those guys are talking about green wings, not in, you know, huge numbers. Uh, bags were mainly consisted of shovelers and some widgeon, uh, lots of geese around, but there, were just, there was just no reason for those birds to move around a lot. Uh, so they dealt with that. Uh, moving into the central flyway, I mean, we've, we've really touched on that too. Lack of snowfall in the mm-hmm. prairies. I mean, uh, you know, one of our migration alert editors, John Pullman, you know, he was calling me in December, even early January, saying he's hearing about, you know, big numbers of mallards and Edmonton, mm-hmm. like what are they doing? You know, yeah. and why haven't they left? Well, yeah, and so like that's just a pretty. That, I think that's the the theme that kind of encapsulates all of this season, and it went flyway to flyway to flyway. I mean, Mississippi flyway was no different. Great Lakes issues, uh, no no ice up there. You move into the Atlantic flyway, obviously the Great Lakes play into that, but they had pretty mild temperatures throughout, and I think. Chesapeake Bay area, you know, waterfowling historical region. Um, They went from dry to super wet to dry. Um, Some of the reports out of there were, you know, lots of wood ducks. Mm, Guys were shooting wood ducks in pretty good numbers early, but then nothing really materialized after that. Yeah. Um, It just was super slow for a lot of guys, so. That's consistent with the report we got out of Molly Neese out of South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wood ducks were pretty strong. Uh, Wood ducks have been a savior for Atlantic Flyway hunters. I mean, that's what talk about a recovery story, a, a beneficial recovery story in the wildlife space, wildlife conservation field, and and how it's um, yeah it's it's saving hunting seasons for a lot yeah. of Atlantic Flyway hunters. Uh, you know, uh, think also about Florida. I don't have a good read on Florida outside of one little snapshot. I know our social media specialist, Mallory Murphy, went down there in early December, I think that was, and hunted with some folks down there, and I think on two days. Not sure they, I'm not sure if they pulled the trigger on a single duck. It was really slow. Mm. Didn't see a whole lot of blue wings. They were also trying to shoot some model ducks. Of course, they're resident down there, but they just didn't, weren't doing quite right for them. Uh, that's when they ended up shooting a few snipe, going snipe hunting. That's what led to the, <laughs> that's what then sort of steamrolled into a series of, of uh, social media posts about snipe hunting and eating snipe. We got into snipe in North Louisiana. That was always a fun thing. So that's how all that happened. Shooting snipe's but, pretty cool, Mike, but you it, never hear about that during a good duck season. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> no. so that's probably no. why we talked yeah. about it. You know? <laughs> I'm not going to name names, but I hunted at probably one of the better clubs in Arkansas this year, historically. Um, it's in a super great area, and, and we shot, and I was fired up. You know, it's timber. I was like, this is going to be good. We shot ringnecks and snow geese. <laughs> Not what you were expecting <laughs> no. there, was it? And we were, and I was like, man, this is this is good. This was fun, and, you know. And so th- that was certainly interesting. Um, but I mean, I think everyone had those days this year. We, we need sure. a good, we need a good correspondent from Florida to kind of keep us in tune with the the birds they got down there. They got a number of hunters down there but, in Florida. Yeah, they got I've gone down there to hunt a couple wings. times. Yeah. 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 Florida Mallards, yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, but I would imagine their season was much like everybody else. There was nothing that I could imagine would be substantially different to make them have a super great year. Mm-hmm. I imagine they struggled. Not a lot of birds moving. Um, not a lot of great weather to to put a lot of birds down. Now, I guess the the 
silver lining of in much of this discussion is that survey numbers out of eastern Canada this year, this past year, were, were pretty stable. Uh, black duck numbers were up. I haven't heard a whole lot of reports on how people did black duck-wise in terms of the harvest of that, but I think they were expecting a pretty decent number of those to be in the fall flight. Um, so, you know, that's uh, that's kind of what we expect, though, out of the duck population, breeding populations in the in those eastern survey areas, a fair bit of stability. And we saw that last year. Mallard numbers uh, continue to be up from a few years ago uh, in that region. So that's a good thing. And yeah, so I guess now we look forward, right? Yep. I think that's all you can do. Um, you know, can't can't dwell on that. Yeah. So uh, this, ready this to put this behind us. <laughs> happy yeah. to put it in the rear view mirror. Yeah. I hope everybody out there had at least one or two good hunts, you know, to kind of keep you excited. I think that's what we said in that article we put in the magazine last year is that we didn't expect this to be a banner year, but hopefully you see enough birds and have enough, I guess, have enough opportunities to keep you optimistic about yeah. spending time in the field. And Jimbo, I know you always say that getting out, spending time with friends and family is is more important than shooting birds. Absolutely. We all like to smell burn powder and have a heavy strap of ducks, watch your dog work, but it's about everything. It's about all of it, you know, and, and keep that in perspective. You know, there's yeah. too many people worry about just having a pile and, and that's all fun too. That's why we go, but it's not the only reason that got to spend time with a lot of great folks and that's the best part of it. That's right. Of course, there's a lot of speculation now about the future. You there know, is. A lot of that. Should we go there? Not Should just we? yet. I'm, I'm going to make another okay. anecdotal deal as you look at b-pop numbers from last year you see pintails are up yeah and just thinking anecdotally here just from my little snapshot of where i was and where i hunted i did notice i think i noticed more pintails now i don't hunt a lot of good pintail country so i don't shoot many that said i seem to see a lot of pintails or i i felt pintails were up a little bit i yeah. heard that too i also wonder if we saw a redistribution of pintails from the Gulf Coast because of how dry it was, yeah. because mm. typically that's where they winter in large numbers. I have I have no data on that. I just speculating. One of the few times that we can do that and have fun with it and feel comfortable comfortable about it. We can tell a story around that. I don't know if it's true. Right. But but Makes that's a possibility. So. Yeah. I know that's there was one. not a lot of habitat there for them, uh, as it would be in in a normal year or above average year so they had to go somewhere maybe they worked their way back north um they we know that we know they can do that we know pintails can be and are a highly mobile species in that regard so don't know but i i heard that from other people as well i noticed that some of the places where i was hunting a lot of pintails so don't know though it's always good to see an upbeat number uh in amongst a list of you know down arrows like what we saw last mm. year in the breeding population survey and so would welcome that again this year hopefully pintails will find a place to to settle and breed and be counted on the survey yeah yeah buddy hopefully hopefully between now and end of may a lot of good things will happen now, we're yeah. going to need it we're i was going to need it yeah we're going to we're going to be kind of staying on the pulse of that as well with future podcasts and but you know just as kind of a snapshot mike you know from your perspective looking at the habitat now, what's going to be needed to really drive that breeding habitat to improve? A lot of snow, a lot of rain. Um, we, 
there's a couple different data sets that we look at to get an idea of how things are shaping up. One is the North American Drought Monitor, and this report will contain a map from January 31st, and you look across Prairie Canada, you look across the northern tier of the of the U.S. prairies, it's abnormally dry uh, all the way up to some, uh, some regions classified as exceptional drought there in southwestern Alberta, uh, maybe, or in southern Alberta, southwestern Saskatchewan, uh, much of southern Saskatchewan, Alberta is in some form of severe to exceptional drought. It's not good up there. Scott Stevens was on a, was on a call with him the other day. And he was saying he drove across eastern portions of the prairies last week. Very little snow cover on the ground up there. There's some in a few areas, but it's not, it's not, uh, I don't think it's very moisture laden snow. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what, it's not real heavy snow. So I don't think there's going to be a big runoff factor associated with what snow is there right now. It's going to require a lot more snow probably some rain too uh, in the spring. And I think we always hope for some rain throughout the summer to keep those water levels, uh, wetland levels high because we need it. We need water in those wetlands to encourage birds to settle in those landscapes, but more importantly, so they can raise their broods once they hatch. Um, So combination of things that we need there. And I will tell you, you know, the tone of some of the conversations I've had with a number of people are not optimistic. Um, It's just like there's about every conversation I have is that I drove this, I drove through this area or I drove two hours from this, uh, from this location to this one. I saw very few wetlands that had any water in it. I uh, heard one person say, if I went out and tried to go hunting tomorrow, if, I, if it was hunting season and I wanted to go hunt, I'd have to drive two hours to find a wetland that had water in it. Mm. You know, you don't like to hear those mm-hmm. stories, and I'm not meaning to scare folks, but also I think we have to be realistic about what, what we're facing up there. And so these are the natural uh, variations in weather that we see. And when you combine these with all of the other forces that are acting against us and the things that we care about in terms of ongoing grassland loss, ongoing wetland loss, uh, wetland drainage in many of the provinces in Canada, um, and, and, and a lot of other, a lot of other challenges that we're seeing across the prairies. Um, it reminds us that our work is far from done because, Mm. you know, even if we had secured, all of the land that we wanted to, you know, for relative to our objectives through perpetual easements, voluntary easements and so forth, and had a lot of other, uh, had one or two million more acres of CRP out there. Um, we still have to contend with the vagaries of, of nature mm-hmm. uh, and what it gives us on a year-to-year basis. And we're seeing that right now. And so our work is not done. The numbers that we're seeing um, certainly tell that story loud and clear. We'll keep an eye on those prairies. Uh the and and hopefully we get a lot of rain. I mean, it's it's late February. There's still a couple of months. Uh, there's but, still time. Um, so you're telling me there's a chance. There's, there's telling a chance. me there's a chance. There's the, always a chance. The other thing that I'll say is that when you look across the boreal forest there of northern Canada, it's pretty dry too. Uh, last year was a record-setting year in terms of some of those, uh, in, in terms of forest fires, evacuating communities, and causing economic. Uh, hardship for many, many uh, communities and upending the livelihoods of so many people. Uh, you've got the human factor involved in all of that, and we never like to uh, never like to see any of that. But that's that was a reality of what we saw, what happened last year. There are 
there's still drought conditions entrenched across the boreal forest. So I think there are a lot of folks in Canada that are kind of anticipating unless something changes dramatically between now and um, and the fire season that they may see a resurgence of some of those fires. I actually was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago and said um, there are probably some of those fires that are still smoldering beneath the surface. And so when things warm back up, and it gets, it, right it's just going to, you know, because it's that deep, deep in that peat, mm-hmm. deep in that carbon rich um, soil. It's just the heat's just hanging in there and it mm-hmm. dries out and gets hot. Those things can take off again. I certainly hope that doesn't happen. Um, but, you know, it's, so there's that part of it, that, that question out there as well. What effect will that have on settling patterns for waterfowl? What effect will it have on the productivity of waterfowl that settle in that landscape? We know from past research that uh, long-term and even short-term, ducks uh, are quite resilient to fires in those landscapes. So I'm not too worried about that unless we see increasing frequency and severity, intensity of fires in those landscapes. That's when it might, you might think about it a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I've kind of picked up on, I don't have a good read on this, but Alaska, I've, I think they've, I know Anchorage has had one of its snowiest winters on record. It's been incredibly mm-hmm. cold, maybe one of its coldest winters on record. I may be exaggerating that a little bit, but I know they're above average right for this date on for snow snowfall in that portion of Alaska. I know I've seen photos from a good friend of mine, Dr. Mark Lindbergh. He's a photographer, lives up there in Alaska. Some of the photos that he showed of of him out um, in that what did he say? 40, 50 below zero, something like that. Just insane, uh, the images that he was able to capture. So Alaska has been. Um, that's probably a topic worth worth talking about sometime in the future is like what all happened up there this year? I mean, how bad was that winter? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what does that mean for habitat conditions for breeding waterfowl that head back to Alaska? Hopefully we get a different number than what we saw last year. Hopefully we get some noticeable, sizable uh, return of duck numbers during the survey uh, there in Alaska and get those birds cranking out some, some youngins. And yeah, it, you know, so it's like, uh, it's a multi-step process here. If we want to get back to, to high population levels, you got to first recover from the drought that we're in, but then you got to stay out of that drought for another year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and you got to hope you got a couple of years back to back yeah, of some wet springs. Yeah. yeah and got to hope we continue to keep some of that grass and maybe put some of that grass back on that landscape because ducks got to have grass to nest in. And that's one of the opportunities though with the, with the drought is getting the grass to start back and rejuvenating those wetland areas with good grasses and, Get rid of some of the not so wanted species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's probably an opportunity for some of that as well. You know, one thing we, the last couple of years with the Canadian prairies being as dry as they are, we really, you know, the U.S. prairies, North Dakota, South Dakota, really carried, you know, production pretty well. Um, Right now, it appears that North Dakota and South Dakota are in decent shape, better than the Canadian prairies, are they not? I think they're better than the Canadian prairies, but person that I was talking to recently was the one that was saying that if they had, if they were to go out and find a place to duck hunt right now, they'd have to drive a couple hours. Wow. So I don't yeah. know where 
they were in the Dakotas, but I, you could actually look at look closely at this map, and there is drought in northern North Dakota. There's abnormal dry conditions um, there in Montana. Uh, there's some drought inching over into southeastern South Dakota, prairie region of Minnesota and Iowa is dry. So, uh, you know, it's fortunately Great Lakes from, well, I guess Michigan, southern Ontario, eastern Canada, they're probably in pretty good shape. I think they've had some beneficial rain. Uh, The other place, the other place that I guess would be worth talking about is kind of what's happening out west uh, right now, I mentioned earlier that snowpack levels in in, in the Western Mountains, or the Cas- Cascades, Rockies, whichever mountain range you want to talk about, as of I guess December, November, December, they were well below average. But here recently, kind of since early January, mid January, they've started to pick up quite a bit of snowfall in the mountains. They, and now I think. California and western states are in the midst of a series of those atmospheric rivers. It's bringing a lot of rain, in a lot of, in some cases, too much rain. But that is beneficial for locally breeding waterfowl in California and some of those other areas of the Intermountain West. I don't want to speak too exact about how it's shaping up in Washington and Oregon because I know they have several different portions of that state where that will carry breeding waterfowl. I'm not exactly sure how habitat conditions mm-hmm. are shaping up, but they've been getting some um, some recharge of that snowpack and probably going to be uh, put them in fairly decent shape for breeding waterfowl this year, which is it's good news, good mm-hmm. news. But um, yeah, it's, an, it's another year. The We never stop looking, do we? Nope. Always got to watch. Ducks don't stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, they go from one part of the world one part of the uh, continent moving. to the uh, to another, and they're always trying to complete some life cycle event, and they got to have habitat to do that, whether it be down here, whether it be in California, whether it be the South Atlantic, Florida, prairies, boreal, Alaska. I could go on. Yeah. You know, um, they got to have those good habitat conditions if they uh, if we, if they are to do what we want them to do. So yeah, and they'll they'll bounce back pretty quickly. I know there's a. <clears throat> There's a lot of folks, a lot of concern right now amongst the duck hunting public about our duck populations, for sure. And while it's cyclical, it's certainly something to be concerned of. However, there's a lot of really good people looking after them, too. There are some super smart people looking after it. The I will add this, you know, this comment here, just if people are wondering, because I actually had a good friend of mine text me the other day and ask this question, and I kind of thought he might... I uh, kind of was surprised to have him asking me this question, um, but he asked about the regulations for the upcoming year, 24-25, and they're already, the recommendations have already been made. I don't know where they are in that official process, you know, of getting it, of the formal recommendation from the Flyway Councils to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service approving it. I'm not not part of that decision Uh that decision process. So I don't know exactly where they are. I think I know, but I'm not going to guess. I'm not going to say it out loud, but the recommendations are in, they've Mm -hmm. been in for quite some time and they are for, and they're based on observations that were made during this past season. It follows from the, uh, those rigorously informed 
matrices and models and adaptive harvest management. And they are, the recommendation is for liberal seasons across the board, liberal frameworks. Let me put it like that. Liberal frame, liberal frameworks in each of the flyways mm -hmm. for the 24, 25 season. I have no reason to believe that's going to change. Um, no one has suggested that it would. I have not heard that. So, um, I, but that's not to say that it's final because it's not final until it comes out in, in the federal register. And I don't think that's happened yet. Um, but yeah, I, if, if somebody asked me, what are we expecting for next year? Liberal frameworks. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, me too. I, I was looking at that, you know, and who knows? Everybody's worried about the next year. Well, worry about that in May. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a lot can happen between now and then. Um, and it's happened before, you know, there's up and down ways with ducks. Yeah. Been Abs forever. Just just watch. Yep. Absolutely. There always will be. Um, if, if you don't like variation, I think Scott Stevens said this, if you don't like variation, duck hunting's probably not for you because you're going to get it. Whether yeah, you're talking you're, about <laughs> number of birds you see, God the habitat it. conditions you see within a year, from year to year, uh, there's not a lot of consistency. These birds move around. They're going to go to different places and they're going to rise and fall in, in numbers and habitat's going to go up and down in abundance and conditions. And so if variation is not your thing, well, I'd encourage you to, I'd encourage <laughs> you to try to get used to that and become a duck hunter. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. if you can't get used to it, you're probably not going to be a very right. happy duck hunter. That's you know? exactly right. Well, before we, uh, we get out of here, uh, just something timely with this airing the last week of February, Jimbo, what did you see as far as snow goose numbers? In the month of February, they were bailing out of there so fast it, that it is. Uh, we're trying to do the light goose conservation order updates, yeah. and this could probably serve as something for there a snow goose go. hunter who may be listening. Um, what were you seeing, man? That that was fun to watch. So we talked about it earlier after the freeze and thawed out, and the wind turned out of the south. <clears throat> it was immediate. You started seeing big lines of snow geese, yeah. And mallards mixed with them and speckle bellies like going north. It's like, and they, I was like, golly, dang, how many of them are there? Because they just keep going and going. And now I live south of Interstate 40. And you can ride around and maybe find a goose somewhere. The past couple of days, we've been doing some photo shoots and some duck banding uh, on a place north of 40, um, Biodeview Basin, between Biodeview and Cache. Um, and north a little bit. And there's still some geese trading around. There's still some folks hunting. There were some guys goose hunting doing very well. And then I heard up on the state line there were still a lot. Mm -hmm. But I made the comment really quick, like, if you were a traveling snow goose guide business or a group of guys that traveled chasing the spring conservation order and wanted to start in Arkansas or the Stuttgart area, February 2nd, whenever it started, you started out behind them. Oh, yeah. You, you were in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, was, there's guys killing geese over there in Arkansas still. Yeah. But more north. The, yeah. There were still several around north of McCrory, that part of the world, all north. Mm -hmm. um, but it's been interesting to see see that. I talked to Ira McCauley at the NWTF, part of Habitat Flats, and we were kind of having this same conversation. How was duck season? And they just had some of their first clients at Habitat Flats the week previous. And I thought, gosh, dang, y'all got to be covered up. But like he said, he said, typically, they're not there yet. You know, you, you you don't get started yet. So they came late and left early yeah. this yeah. year. Came south early. Yeah, and left they came early. south late. We didn't yeah, have snow geese late. on the ground. Like I said, we normally got a bunch of snow geese around by Halloween, but this year you didn't. Mm -hmm. But when they got there, they got there thick, yeah. but they left 
headed back north pretty quick too. It is an impressive sight. I've really only seen that once. Uh, a nonstop line of snow geese streaming north. I saw it a few years ago whenever Dr. Heath Hagee and I were headed over to uh, to hunt in western Missouri and f- for hours driving on whatever road that was. I mean, it was just nonstop. And, and look, I've seen a lot of birds in my life. I've never seen anything like that. I was just craning my neck constantly no. looking at these birds. What, are they ever going to stop? Ever going to stop? It was just, and it was strong south wind. Man, it's Cooking. impressive. Yeah. It is. Yeah, I've seen that in Nebraska and outside the Rainwater Basin and then we're driving back south leaving the area and as you're driving you just I mean it's not like the Atlanta airport they're just lines lined up one after the other yeah, as far just, as you can drive as, as far see, as you can see oh, yeah. just, it's cool it's no, very cool very, I've seen that I get to see it a lot I've seen it with snow geese coming south also yeah, you know the wild. other way so it's, it's they're uh, a lot of people don't like them I don't chase them real hard um, <laughs> waiting around in a muddy rice field you know, t- setting 10,000 snow goose decoys is not necessarily my thing. Now, if a bunch of guys want to go set, make me a spot, I'll come help them yeah. shoot, you know. <laughs> but it's they're really fun to watch. And yeah. a lot of, like I said, they, there's anecdotally, they're kind of hurting maybe some of our duck energy days and kind of wading off into our mallard habitat some, but they are fun to watch. Yeah. They are one of North America's most spectacular phenomena, I would say, just in terms of their sheer numbers, the noise they make, what we're just talking about, their migrations when they get on that, when they get going north or start or heading south in mass. I think we take them for granted. Uh, people that see them a lot, I think we take that for granted. You get oh, other people that are seeing them for the first time. Mm-hmm. You, you get people that see them for the first time and they're just in awe. It's like... I I would kind of liken it to our reaction if we would go to the Serengeti and see one of the see a big mass migration of, of animals over there. It's mm-hmm. just it, it's a spectacular, um, it's a, it's just a spectacular event to see them. It's it's you see it all the time where I live. They'll be we'll get a bunch of geese on the ground or the field by the house or something. People will stop on the highway yeah. or stop on the mm-hmm. road and get out and take pictures and. Yeah, it's unfortunate that we kind of vilified them the way we did. Hmm. Uh, you know, understand oh, I got all that kind of stuff. But, think they're scared to the earth, but man, they <laughs> but are, eating their duck food. Uh, though. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in that perspective, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. But no, incredible, I mean, incredible sight to see. When yeah, you, when and then the surprising that. thing, just talking about the weather and how warm it was, how it warmed up quick. Um, the guys that I'm talking to who normally guide in South Dakota were down in Missouri ten days ago just hunting for fun and they looked up and those geese weren't stopping in Missouri. They packed all their stuff and went north yeah. and they're in South Dakota already. They yeah, read I mean, the tea leaves. That's right. I mean, they're just like, yeah, sh- show's over. Yeah. You know, we yeah. got to get up there. Yeah. If, we're gonna, if they wanted to be on the leading edge, they had, they'd had they better be in South Dakota. Yeah. Was it, I saw uh, saw a post from Lois Bluff's National Wildlife Refuge, 1.6 or 1.8 yeah, million to, birds uh, or whatever it was. I oh, talked gosh. to Mickey Heitmeyer yesterday. He and I had a big chat and he was telling me about the 1.6 the other day and they picked up a bunch more. He said, I wouldn't surprise me if it's over two yeah, as of yesterday. Mm-hmm. Well, the surprising thing about that is they were reporting like, 8,000 birds on like January 28th and like February 1. They, they had, up, they had a half a million geese. That looks. Yeah, I, I mean, hey, you, you could see it, but it, it was yeah. crazy. Yep. Fun to watch. Very impressive. Well, this has been good. Um, anything else you want to add, Mike or Jim? You know, I think we've covered a good majority of it. 
I would say stay tuned. We're going to be talking to a lot of other folks, especially uh, as, over the next couple of months as, as we get closer to the breeding season. We'll be keeping a very close eye on, uh, on the prairies, uh, other landscapes. I think we should try to get somebody to talk with us about what happened in Alaska. Maybe mm, that'd be Dr. Cool. Dr. Mark Lindbergh, if he's listening, um, consider yourself somebody else out there kind of put on notice we're going to try, to get, we're gonna, we're gonna get, try to get in touch with you talk a little bit about alaska um but yeah stay tuned we're going to have a lot more information coming and it feels like we're just getting started although we're just ending one season that's right here we go again that's right i'd like to thank my co-host dr mike brazier for joining me today in studio and and just providing the update for the season review I'd like to thank jim ronquist for joining us today from drake waterfowl and providing his insight and just the entire landscape of waterfowl i'd like to thank our producer chris isaac for putting the show together and putting it up to you and i'd like to thank you the listener for joining us on the du podcast and supporting wetlands conservation peace Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU Podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.